The greatest blessing that can come to mankind is to be numbered with the saints of the Lord. <clears throat> Today there are millions of God's children waiting to be taught the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, as Jesus said, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. In accordance with Latter-day Revelation from the Lord, we are living in the last days of the dispensation of the fullness of times. And according to statisticians, the world's population of people has increased from one-fourth of a billion when Jesus Christ lived on this earth to over three and a half billion today, and the increase continues. The phenomenal population growth in these the latter days is by divine power with divine purpose. The dispensation of the fullness of times has staggering statistics, perilous times, and worldwide need for millions of valiant saints and missionaries. The Lord, by revelation to his prophet Joseph Smith, declared and commanded the Latter-day Saints to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ to every nation and people. He said, Proclaim my gospel from land to land and from city to city. Bear testimony in every place unto every people. For verily the voice of the Lord is unto all men, and there is none to escape. And there is no eye that shall not see, neither ear that shall not hear neither heart that shall not be penetrated. This gospel shall be preached unto every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Every man shall hear the fullness of the gospel in his own tongue and in his own language <clears throat> through those that are ordained unto this power. The scriptures are filled with commands and promises and calls and rewards regarding missionary work. The Lord gave this important warning by commandment to his Latter-day Saints, Labor ye in my vineyard for the last time, for the last time call upon the inhabitants of the earth. It is the eleventh hour, and the last time that I shall call laborers into my vineyard. And my vineyard has become corrupted every whit, and there is none which doeth good save it be a few. And they err in many instances because of priestcraft, all having corrupt minds. And verily, verily, I say unto you that this church have I established and called forth out of the wilderness, and even so will I gather mine elect from the four quarters of the earth. <clears throat> and as many as will believe in me and hearken unto my voice. Yea, verily, verily, I say unto you, that the field is white already to harvest. Wherefore, thrust in your sickles, and reap with all your might, mind, and strength. Open your mouths, and they shall be filled. Yea, open your mouths, and spare not, <clears throat> and you shall be <clears throat> laden with sheaves upon your backs. <clears throat> Excuse me. For lo, I am with you. Yea, open your mouths, and they shall be filled saying, Repent, repent, and prepare ye the way of the Lord, and make the path straight, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yea, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of your sins. Yea, be baptized even by water, and then cometh the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost. Again, by commandment of the Lord, 
missionary work is the duty and responsibility of every member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Jesus said, I give unto you a commandment, that every man, both elder, priest, teacher, and also member, go to with his might, with the labor of his hands, to prepare and accomplish the things which I have commanded. And let your preaching be the warning voice, every a man to his neighbor in mildness and meekness. And go you out from among the wicked, the Lord said. Save yourselves. And the Lord commanded, Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. <clears throat> upon no other group of men in the world rests greater responsibility than upon the priesthood holders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And every member of the Lord's Church should so live and prepare themselves to be saviors of men. By preaching the gospel of salvation to the world, the saints become saviors of men. Of his saints, the Lord said, they were set to be a light unto the world and to be saviors of men. And he added these words of warning. And inasmuch as they are not saviors of men, they are a salt that has lost its savor and is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under foot of man. Saints that do not become saviors will be cast out and will be trodden under foot of man. Now is the time to do missionary work. Now is the time to be saviors. To all that will teach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to their friends and neighbors, the Lord has promised them salvation to their souls. Hear this divine counsel and promise. O ye that embark in the service of God, see that ye serve him with all your heart, might, mind, and strength, that ye may stand blameless before God at the last day. For behold, the field is white already to harvest, and lo, <clears throat> he that thrusteth in his sickle with his might, the same layeth up in store that he perisheth not, but bringeth salvation to his soul. I would like to quote several statements that were given by President Kimball. He said, perhaps the greatest reason for missionary work is to give the world its chance to hear and accept the gospel. The scriptures are replete with commands and promises and calls and rewards for teaching the gospel. I use the word command deliberately, he said, for it seems to be an insistent directive from which we singly and collectively cannot escape. Ours is a missionary church. We must prepare missionaries. We must be missionaries. Every young man should prepare to fill a mission. What an army we should have teaching Christ and Him crucified. We hope to go to all the world. How we'll do that only the Lord knows, but we are trying to find out, the prophet said. I believe that the Lord is anxious to put into our hands inventions which we laymen have hardly had a glimpse. He will open the gates and make possible the proselyting. I believe the time has come when we must change our sights and raise our goals. End of the prophet's quotes. Today the following well-known, often repeated words from the Lord should always be uppermost in our thoughts and actions. The Lord has commanded, Remember the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. For behold, your, <clears throat> the Lord your Redeemer suffered death in the flesh, 
Wherefore he suffered the pain of all men, that all men might repent and come unto him. And he hath risen again from the dead, that he might bring all men unto him on condition of repentance. And how great is his joy in the soul that repenteth. Wherefore ye are called to cry repentance unto this people. Brothers and sisters, we are all called to cry repentance unto the people. And if it so be that you should labor all the days in crying repentance unto this people, the Lord said, and bring, save it be but one soul unto me, how great shall be your joy with him in the kingdom of my Father. What a blessing and achievement it is when you help one of God's children to become godlike and prepared to uh, live with their heavenly Father in his celestial kingdom. And now if your joy will be great with one soul that you have brought unto me into the kingdom of my Father, the Lord said, how great will be your joy if you should bring many souls unto me. Jesus said, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Then he gave this important commandment that often we overlook. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. If all the saints would pray to the Lord to send laborers into the harvest, we'd have many more. A prophet of God said, every member a missionary. That is a prophetic statement with prophetic power. The following divine promise has great eternal meaning to the saints of the Lord. Jesus declared, By hearkening to observe all the words which I, the Lord God, shall speak unto them, they shall never cease to prevail until the kingdom of the world, kingdoms of the world are subdued under my feet, and the earth is given unto the saints to possess it forever and ever. The number of saints that will possess this earth forever and ever depends in part on the missionary effort of the valiant saints that live on this earth in the latter days. Jesus said, This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. We should give we that have testimonies, the Lord's children, <clears throat> a chance and opportunity to know the only true God and Jesus Christ. I love and sustain President Spencer W. Kimball. He's truly a prophet of God. I bear witness that God lives in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Several years ago, I had as a special acquaintance a good friend and a good friend, an ironic priesthood age boy from whom I learned many of life's special lessons. He came from what we commonly refer to as a good family, but his parents seemed to take the heart of the gospel for granted. They were willing to attend most of their meetings on Sunday if it was convenient. They were warm people and friendly, always receptive to the brethren and sisters who came to their home. But I doubt if they had family prayer very often, and I'm sure family home evening was something occasionally discussed but seldom experienced. 
With no real personal attention, the children were allowed to come and go as they pleased. On one occasion, my young friend told me he was sure that his parents loved him, but oh, how he wished they cared about him. You know, to a young person, there can be a difference. He said he wished just once, as he went out of the door, they would ask him where he was going and when he would be home. He wanted them to give him some guidelines. He confessed that he wasn't always sure of the judgments that were left to him, if only they had cared enough. Now, years later, the offspring of this family have experienced the birth of illegitimate children, divorce in their own marriages, runaways, drug addiction, and most everything else can be tragic in our lives. Today I'd like to visit with the parents about some concerns I believe we share together. As we read the newspapers, we become justifiably concerned over what is happening around us. There is a growing concern among our people as we see the prophecies of times past being unfolded before our very eyes. Some have a feeling of frustration, anxiety, anger, and yes, even fear. But remember that Paul, in his letters to Timothy, counseled, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. May I suggest the steps we can take that will dispel fear and bring peace and power are really very simple. The teachings of the gospel are not complicated. They are not hard to understand. They need not be confusing. Let us not be blinded by the craftiness of men. Nephi once said that because of the simpleness of the way or the easiness of it, there were many who perished. Jacob put it another way when he said that they became blinded because they were continually looking beyond the mark in their search for answers. They didn't believe in the simplicity of the gospel teachings. Yes, it is true that a family beset with trials and concerns seems to be the constant pattern of our mortal existence. However true this fact may be, it need not, it must not, have an adverse influence in our lives. Children are saved and families are exalted by participating in some very simple gospel experiences. Let us listen to the reassuring words of the Lord as we try to analyze what we can do. He said, But learn that he who doeth the works of righteousness shall receive his reward, even peace in this world and eternal life in the world to come. Learn of me and listen to my words. Walk in the meekness of my spirit, and you shall have peace in me. Could this be our answer? I find in these scriptures some very clear instructions and comforting promises. May I discuss just one of many possibilities with you? Learn of me, he said, and you shall have peace in me. We've spoken often of where we can best learn of him. Of course, it still is and always shall be in the home. This is the main purpose for which the Lord established the organization of the family and home, that therein we might teach each other, especially the little children, to love the Savior and understand and live his teachings. As you consider the importance of teaching your little ones, have you ever thought in depth on the following scriptural passages? 
And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe unto them, because they have offended my little ones. They shall be severed from the ordinances of mine house. Their basket shall not be full. Their houses and their barns shall perish. And they themselves shall be despised by those who flattered them. They shall not have right to the priesthood, nor their posterity after them from generation to generation. Might it not be an offense of the greatest magnitude if we don't teach them of him? If we don't teach them to listen to his words and to walk in the meekness of his spirit, let us ponder that in our hearts. As we consider how we might better learn of him and teach of him, may I suggest one of the great blessings your family may be missing out on is the simple experience of reading the scriptures together daily. We read in Deuteronomy, And these words which I command thee this day shalt be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house. As I have traveled to the stakes of the Church, I have found many dedicated parents who gather their family about them daily to study the revelations of the Lord as recorded in the Holy Scriptures. I remember one family of twelve children who studied together daily in two groups, one for the older and another for the younger in their family. Think of the time and effort this has taken over the years. Think how the blessings to this family have multiplied as many of their children have now reached adulthood and are raising young families of their own. I was in another home where ten children, all young, were given a daily treat of the scriptures. I know of a mother alone with four children. She has them get ready early for bed and reads to them from the scriptures before they go to sleep each night. What a blessing for thoughtful parents to shower on their most important responsibility, their little ones. There shouldn't be, there mustn't be one family in this church who doesn't take the time to read from the scriptures every day. Every family can do it in their own way. I have a testimony of this. May I relate a personal experience from the Peterson family? Some years ago, after wrestling with the problem for some time, my wife and I, sensing the urgency of our parental charge, devised a new battle plan. You see, up to that point, Satan had been winning the battle of should we or should we not read the scriptures together in the Peterson home. We had tried off and on for years with no sustained success. Our big problem was that someone or something always interrupted our schedule. With a 17-year spread in our children's ages, we felt we had a special challenge. As we studied and prayed over it, we concluded that the best time for our family of girls to read would be when no one else wanted our time. Since the older girls had to be in seminary by 7 a.m., our controllable time had to be early. We decided on 6.15 in the morning. This would be a challenge to get teenage support. The idea was good. Its implementation was most difficult, and it still is. Our family is still struggling. 
Our great new plan had its birth one hot August day in Phoenix, Arizona. My wife suggested we give them a whole month to think about it and prepare for it. We went about their mental preparation in a very positive way. The plan was to start the first day of school in early September. To their protests that it was impossible to have their heads all filled with rollers in time or that it was not likely they would feel happy so early in the morning, that they might be late for seminary or they might not have time to eat breakfast either, we replied very cheerfully that we knew they were clever enough to cope with any minor problems that might arise. At its announcement, we also told the girls we had been praying for guidance in this family problem. This made it easier because they had been schooled in prayer and had been taught not to question its results. The historic first morning finally came. My wife and I got up a little extra early so we would be sure to be wide awake and happy. Our initial approach must meet with success. We entered each bedroom singing and happy at the thought of the prospects before us. Purposely, we went to one special bedroom first. Here slept a daughter who would be able to get up early but who couldn't wake up before noon. We sat her up in bed and then went to the others and started them all into the family room. Some stumbled, some fell, some had to be carried in, some slept through that first morning, and I might say, might say through subsequent mornings too. Little by little we've learned over the years what reading the scriptures 15 minutes each morning can do for our family. You should know that we don't try to discuss and understand each point we read. We try to pick out only a couple of thoughts each morning to digest. You should also know we still have to struggle with the plan's performance, even though we now have only two children at our home. Can you imagine how a parent would feel to ask a little girl, What did King Benjamin mean when he said, When ye are in the service of your fellow beings, ye are only in the service of your God? And she would respond, I suppose he means that I shouldn't be selfish and should do little things for my sisters because it makes Heavenly Father happy. And, Daddy, I want him to be happy with me, so I'm going to try harder. Innumerable are the blessings that will accrue to this family who persist in this noble effort of reading the scriptures together daily. Remember, he said, Learn of me and listen to my words. Walk in the meekness of my spirit, and you shall have peace in me. This is a peace that surpasseth all understanding a peace and a security that will support us through any time and any trial, a peace that will dispel the spirit of fear in a confused world. May the Lord bless us with the understanding and dedication not to offend his little ones. May he strengthen us with the resolve to teach them of him in our homes through the simple experiences of the gospel. May he bless us to understand his words when ye are prepared ye shall not fear. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I have sought and do now seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit so that I may speak plainly and persuasively about two of the crowning doctrines of the gospel. We are the Lord's people, his saints, those to whom he has given much and from whom he expects much in return. 
we know the terms and conditions of the plan of salvation, how Christ died for our sins, and what we must do to reap the full blessings of his atoning sacrifice. We have covenanted in the waters of baptism to love and serve him, to keep his commandments and put first in our lives the things of his kingdom. In return, he has promised us eternal life in his Father's kingdom. We are thus in a position to receive and obey some of the higher laws which prepare us for that eternal life which we so sincerely seek. Accordingly, I shall now set forth some of the principles of sacrifice and consecration to which the true saints must conform if they are ever to go where God and Christ are and have an inheritance with the faithful saints of ages past. It is written, He who is not able to abide the law of a celestial kingdom cannot abide a celestial glory. The law of sacrifice is a celestial law. So also is the law of consecration. Thus, to gain that celestial reward which we so devoutly desire, we must be able to live these two laws. Sacrifice and consecration are inseparably intertwined. The law of consecration is that we consecrate our time, our talents, and our money and property to the cause of the Church. Such are to be available to the extent they are needed to further the Lord's interests on earth. The law of sacrifice is that we are willing to sacrifice all that we have for the truth's sake, our character and reputation, our honor and applause, our good name among men, our houses, lands, and families, all things, even our very lives, if need be. Joseph Smith said, A religion that does not require the sacrifice of all things never has power sufficient to produce the faith necessary to lead unto life and salvation. We are not always called upon to live the whole law of consecration and give all of our time, talents, and means to the building up of the Lord's earthly kingdom. Few of us are called upon to sacrifice much of what we possess, and at the moment there is only an occasional martyr in the cause of revealed religion. But what the scriptural account means is that to gain celestial salvation we must be able to live these laws to the full if we are called upon to do so. Implicit in this is the reality that we must in fact live them to the extent we are called upon so to do. How, for instance, can we establish our ability to live the full law of consecration if we do not pay an honest tithing? Or how can we prove our willingness to sacrifice all things if need be if we do not make the small sacrifices of time and toil or of money and means that we are now asked to make. As a young man serving under the direction of my bishop, 
I called upon a rich man and invited him to contribute $1,000 to a building fund. He declined, but he did say he wanted to help, and if we would have a ward dinner and charge $5 per plate, he would take two tickets. About 10 days later, this man died unexpectedly of a heart attack. And I have wondered ever since about the fate of his eternal soul. Wasn't there someone who once said, Beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Didn't this same person then speak this parable? The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? And then did he not conclude the matter by saying, So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. When the prophet Gad commanded David to build an altar and offer sacrifice on property owned by a certain man, that man offered to provide the land, the oxen, and all things for the sacrifice without cost. But David said, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. When it costs us but little to give, the treasure laid up in heaven is a small one. The widow's might, given in sacrifice, weighs more heavily in the eternal scales than the bulging granaries of the rich man. There came to Jesus on a certain occasion a rich young man who asked, What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Our Lord's answer was the obvious one, the one given by all the prophets of all the ages. It was, If thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. The next question was, Which commandments? Jesus listed them. Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Then came this response and query. For the young man was a good man, a faithful man, who sought righteousness. All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? we might well ask. Isn't it enough to keep the commandments? What more is expected of us than to be true and faithful to every trust? Is there more than the law of obedience? In the case of our rich young friend, there was more. 
He was expected to live the law of consecration, to sacrifice his earthly possessions, for the answer of Jesus was, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. As you know, the young man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And we are left to wonder what intimacies he might have shared with the Son of God, what fellowship he might have enjoyed with the apostles, what revelations and visions he might have received if he had been able to live the law of a celestial kingdom. As it is, he remains nameless. As it might have been, his name could have been had in honorable remembrance among the saints forever. Now I think it is perfectly clear that the Lord expects more of us than we sometimes render in response. We are not as other men. We are the saints of God and have the revelations of heaven. Where much is given, much is expected. We are to put first in our lives the things of his kingdom. We are commanded to live in harmony with the Lord's laws, to keep all his commandments, to sacrifice all things if need be for his name's sake, to conform to the terms and conditions of the law of consecration. We have made covenants so to do, solemn, sacred, holy covenants pledging ourselves before gods and angels. We are under covenant to live the law of obedience. We are under covenant to live the law of sacrifice. We are under covenant to live the law of consecration. With this in mind, hear this word from the Lord. If you will that I give unto you a place in the celestial world, you must prepare yourselves by doing the things which I have commanded you and required of you. It is our privilege to consecrate our time, talents, and means to build up the kingdom. We are called upon to sacrifice in one degree or another for the furtherance of his work. Obedience is essential to salvation. So also is service so also are consecration and sacrifice. It is our privilege to raise the warning voice to our neighbors and to go on missions and offer the truths of salvation to our Father's other children everywhere. We can respond to calls to serve as bishops, as Relief Society presidents, as home teachers, and in any of hundreds of positions of responsibility in our various church organizations. We can labor on welfare projects, engage in genealogical research, perform vicarious ordinances in the temples. We can pay an honest tithing and contribute to our fast offering, welfare, budget, building, and missionary funds. We can bequeath portions of our assets and devise portions of our properties to the church when we pass on to other spheres. We can consecrate a portion of our time to systematic study, to becoming gospel scholars, to treasuring up the revealed truths which guide us in paths of truth and righteousness. 
And the fact that faithful members of the church do all these things is one of the great evidences of the divinity of the work. Where else do the generality of the members of any church pay a full tithing? Where is there a people whose congregations have one and two and three percent of their number out in volunteer, self-supporting missionary work at all times? Where does any people as a whole build temples or operate welfare projects as we do? And where is there so much unpaid teaching and church administration? In the true church, we neither preach for hire nor divine for money. We follow the pattern of Paul and make the gospel of Christ without charge, lest we abuse or misuse the power the Lord has given us. Freely we have received and freely we give, for salvation is free. All who thirst are invited to come and drink of the waters of life to buy corn and wine without money and without price. All who's all our service in God's kingdom is predicated on his eternal law which states, The laborer in Zion shall labor for Zion, for if they labor for money, they shall perish. We know full well that the laborer is worthy of his hire and that those who devote all their time to the building up of the kingdom must be provided with food, clothing, and shelter and the necessaries of life. We must employ teachers in our schools, architects to design our temples, contractors to build our synagogues, and managers to run our businesses. But those so employed, along with the whole membership of the Church, participate also on a free will and voluntary basis in otherwise furthering the Lord's work. Bank presidents work on welfare projects. Architects leave their drafting boards to go on missions. Contractors lay down their tools to serve as home teachers or bishops. Lawyers put aside corpus juris and the civil code to act as guides on Temple Square. Teachers leave the classroom to visit the fatherless and the widows in their afflictions. Musicians who make their livelihood from their artistry willingly direct church choirs and perform in church gatherings. Artists who paint for a living are pleased to volunteer their services freely. All who have testimonies of the divinity of the work use their talents for the building up of Zion. We solicit and use as much voluntary service as we can in all fields of church activity. All who love the Lord are engaged in his service freely, willingly, voluntarily, serving with no thought of temporal reward. All who love the Lord are anxiously engaged in the good cause of saving souls. All are consecrating of their time, talents, and means to further the Lord's work. In spending the tithing funds of the Church, whether it be to further missionary work, build temples, care for the poor, maintain our Church schools, or whatever is involved, we attempt to be as frugal and wise as conservative and careful men can be. We do not, for instance, adorn our buildings with costly furnishings or build them of rare and high-priced materials. And we constantly counsel our bishops and all who collect or spend any of the sacred funds of the Church 
to be wise, to be conservative, to use judgment and good sense, and to ease the financial burdens laid upon the people as much as they can. This is not a rich man's church. We still go to the poor like our captain of old. Our interests now and forever are centered in the saving of souls and not the wealth and plaudits of the world. But the work of the kingdom must go forward, and the members of the church are and shall be called upon to bear off its burdens. It is the Lord's work and not man's. He is the one who commands us to preach the gospel in all the world, whatever the cost. It is his voice that decrees the building of temples, whatever the cost. He is the one who tells us to care for the poor among us, whatever the cost, lest their cries come up to his throne as a testimony against those who should have fed the hungry and clothed the naked, but who did not. And may I say also, both by way of doctrine and of testimony, that it is his voice which invites us to consecrate of our time, our talents, and our means to carry on his work. It is his voice that calls for service and sacrifice. This is his work. He is at the helm, guiding and directing the destiny of his kingdom. And every member of his church has this promise, that if he remains true and faithful, obeying, serving, consecrating, sacrificing, as required by the gospel, shall be repaid in eternity a thousandfold and shall have eternal life. What more can we ask? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. One of the first things the Lord taught the prophet Joseph Smith at the beginning of this dispensation was that he must take the divine commandments seriously. In order to impress this upon Joseph's mind, at one time God took from him the power to translate. He also rebuked him for the loss of the 116 pages of manuscript of the Book of Mormon. He chastened the prophet also when his family did not live the gospel as they should. The Lord then firmly commanded his young servant, Trifle not with sacred things. When speaking further about the translation of the ancient record, the Lord again commanded, Trifle not with these things. And when the Lord gave instructions concerning missionary work, he again required that the brethren take his words seriously and declared, They shall give heed unto these words and trifle not. Neither should we trifle with the Lord nor with his word, for as he himself said, God will not be mocked. But in spite of all the Lord has said, mankind still trifles with his word, and either by neglect or outright disobedience, they set aside his word with impunity and go on their merry way. One of the most glaring of our inconsistencies is our attitude toward the Sabbath day. It is a sacred day. It is holy. 
and we should not trifle with it. No law in all scripture has been more clearly defined than that of the Sabbath. From the time of Genesis to our own day, there has been no subject spoken of more directly or repeatedly than the Sabbath. It is one of the laws most dear to the heart of God, yet it is noted far more in its desecration than in its acceptance and proper observance. We constantly talk about the worldliness of the present day and speak of the fact that our young people face more serious temptations than did those of a generation ago. And this is probably true. Also, more parents seem to be caught up in the worldliness of today than was the case a generation ago. What can we do to protect ourselves under these hazardous circumstances? How can we better help our young people to remain unspotted from the world? The Lord gives us the answer and says that it can be done by sincerely observing the Sabbath day. Most people have never thought of it in this way, but note the words of the Lord in this regard that thou mayest more fully keep thyself unspotted from the world. Note these words. That thou mayest more fully keep thyself unspotted from the world, thou shalt go to the house of prayer and offer up thy sacraments upon my holy day. Think about that for a moment. Do we really believe in God sincerely? Are we convinced that he knows what he's talking about? If we are, then will we take him and his words seriously, or will we further trifle with divine revelation? The Lord does know what he's talking about. Sabbath observance will help us to more fully remain unspotted from the world. If we are serious about avoiding the contamination of worldliness, Shall we not take his word at face value and believe it and practice it? We should be willing to admit that we are surrounded by nearly every form of seductive worldliness. We should never close our eyes to this fact. To bring the situation more clearly into focus, ask yourselves how much liquor is consumed in your neighborhood, both by adults and by our youth. How much tobacco is thus used? What is the drug situation? How rapidly is crime increasing in the community where you live? And vandalism and immorality? Are they reaching into your family? Have they involved any of your children? And are you frightened and frustrated by it? Then why not accept the divine remedy to combat this very situation. Sabbath observance and church attendance are commanded of God. Shall we take his word seriously and comply with it? Or shall we consider the Sabbath but a trifle in our lives and ignore it and continue to suffer the evil consequences? Is there not deep meaning in what the Lord has said? Let us hear his words again. 
that thou mayest more fully keep thyself unspotted from the world, thou shalt go to the house of prayer and offer up thy sacraments upon my holy day. Here, then, is the inspired answer to our vexing problem. The Lord then goes on to say, For verily this is a day appointed unto you to rest from your labors and to pay thy devotions unto the Most High. The scripture, therefore, requires that we not only desist from our usual pursuits on his holy day, but that we do so with a particular purpose in mind which is that we may more properly and without interference from our de pay our devotions unto the Most High God. Then in plain, blunt words, we are commanded to change our usual routine and go to church and worship God on the Sabbath. The revelation then continues, Nevertheless, thy vows shall be offered up in righteousness, on all days and at all times. In other words, the Lord is not teaching a Sunday-only religion. We must be consistent and be obedient and worshipful every day. Can anyone develop spiritually by adopting a Sunday-only attitude toward religion? However, on his holy day, we must do more than merely go to church. We must worship him, of course, but we must also cleanse ourselves in preparation for that worship by confessing our sins and repenting of them. This reminds us of what the Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, if thou, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath thought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. So he says in modern revelation, Remember that on this the Lord's day thou shalt offer thine oblations and thy sacraments unto the Most High, confessing thy sins unto thy brethren and before the Lord. The bishops are the brethren to be consulted concerning our sins. Can we see, then, how proper observance of the Sabbath will influence our daily lives for good all through the week? Continuing to define what is acceptable to him on his holy day, the Lord says, And on this day thou shalt do none other thing. Only let thy food be prepared with singleness of heart. If we are to do none other thing on Sunday but to devote the day to holy purposes, what is our situation if we willfully choose to operate our businesses on the Sabbath, or if we patronize such Sunday businesses, or if we go to places of recreation on Sunday? We know there are employees in certain essential services, such as in hospitals, and other 24-hour-a-day institutions who have no option as to their working conditions. We do not speak of them. But most people are not so employed, and they have control of their own time. Would they rather ski or swim or go to the movies or conduct business on Sunday 
than to go to church? If the answer is yes, they should ask themselves if they have strayed away from the faith to that extent and adopted another gospel which is not another a gospel of Sunday fun and business. Why don't we take the Lord seriously concerning the Sabbath day? We know that we should not trifle with sacred things and that the Sabbath is his sacred day. In the time of Moses, the Lord impressively declared that the manner in which we spend the Sabbath is a sign of our inner attitude toward him. It is a measure of the sincerity of our faith. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, God declared and added, Ye shall keep the Sabbath, for it is holy unto you. In that day he made its violation a capital offense, and violators were put to death. Then was not the Lord serious about Sabbath day observance? Is he any less so today? Has he changed his mind? He also gave the Sabbath to ancient Israel as a sign that he lives, a sign, as he said, that ye may know that I am the Lord. Then the Sabbath becomes a testimony builder, for if we keep it, our knowledge of and faith in the Lord will increase. And this should be very important to us. If we violate his holy day willingly and willfully, to that extent do we not become enemies of God? We do most certainly become covenant breakers, for he gave us his Sabbath by covenant, a perpetual covenant throughout all generations. President David O. McKay called attention to another most important phase of this subject. He said that the Christian Sabbath, of course, is Sunday in commemoration of the resurrection of the Savior on the first day of the week. He calls the resurrection of Christ the greatest event in all history and notes that by proper observance of the Sabbath, we show our respect for the Lord's passion and his resurrection from the dead. With this thought in mind, let us ask ourselves how important the Lord's atonement is to us. How dear to us is the Lord Jesus Christ? How deeply are we concerned about immortality? Is the resurrection of vital interest to us? We can readily see that observance of the Sabbath is an indication of the depth of our conversion. Our observance or non-observance of the Sabbath is an unerring measure of our attitude toward the Lord personally and toward his suffering in Gethsemane, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead. It is a sign of whether we are Christians in very deed or whether our conversion is so shallow that commemoration of his atoning sacrifice means little or nothing to us. Do we realize that most national holidays are observed more widely than is the Sabbath so far as its divine purpose is concerned? Then have we put God in second or third place 
And is that what we want to do? Is that where he belongs? I bear you testimony that to properly observe the Lord's holy day is one of the most important things we can ever do. It is an essential step toward our eternal salvation. I do not believe we will be saved if we constantly violate the Sabbath and fling our disobedience into the face of the very God we hope will save us. How dare we trifle with the Sabbath day? How dare we trifle with Almighty God? The Lord declares that to qualify to enter His presence, we must live by every word that proceeds forth from His mouth. And the law of the Sabbath is one of the most important in the entire gospel plan. May we have the courage and the good sense to keep it. I humbly pray in the sacred name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.